27.4. Beautiful verse. If you haven't learned this one, this is a good one to learn. And, I, and I've learned it in two or three different uh, versions. But uh, the one that I'm going to quote is out of the living, just because I like the way it states it. And it doesn't do any violence to the translation. It says this. This is David. Remember David who, who developed such an intimate relationship with God? And he says, The one thing I want from God, the thing I seek most of all, is the privilege of meditating in his temple, living in his presence every day of my life, delighting in his incomparable perfections and glory. That's what worship is. Delighting in his incomparable perfections and glory. And you know the story Tim told us, wasn't that beautiful? You know, the little little guy just opening up his arms with a big smile. We've, any of us who are parents have experienced that. But see, that can go on all the time. That's good. You can say it again. Say it again. Not just when we're together in these services, but all the time. Just like David said, living in his presence every day of my life. Not just once a day. Not when we have a little quiet time or a time of study or something. But through the day. Just, just figuratively, if not, if not literally, lifting our arms to him and saying, Lord, I love you. I thank you. I praise you. Living in his presence every day of my life. Let's look at Hebrews, the 10th chapter tonight. Hebrews, the 10th chapter. We're just going to read a few verses. Verses 35 through the end. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Father, thank you for this reminder. Thank you that we have to be told time and time again that there is need for endurance, for perseverance, to stick to it, not to give up, when things start to get tough, not to throw in the towel. And tonight, as we look at this passage, help us to be able to understand how we can do that effectively. Help us to see that this isn't something we accomplish because of good intentions, 
It's not something we accomplish because sometimes we feel like it. Help us to understand how we can be those who endure for your glory. We thank you and we commit ourselves to you and ask that your Holy Spirit will guide our thoughts. I pray for all these who are here that their minds will be under the control of the Holy Spirit to teach them what he wants. And I pray for myself that my words, my thoughts will glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of His dear face all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Oft times the day seems dark, our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away. All tears forever ended in God's eternal day. Jesus, life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ, one glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase, so bravely run the race. with me. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we endurance. The 
to hang in there. The ability to stick to it, even when things look terrible. There was a man a few years ago, some of you won't remember his name, you never knew about him, some may. His name was Samuel Zwemer. He was a missionary to the Muslims. He worked 26 years and saw one person come to Christ in that period of time. Was he successful? You bet. You know why? Because he did what God gave him to do and he stuck with it. That's what endurance is. Endurance is saying, all right, Lord, you show me what you want me to do and, and give me the strength to stick with it. You see, I don't have to do what God has told you to do. And you don't have to do what God has told me to do. But I must do what God has given me to do and stick to it right to the end. And do you know, even though he only saw that one person come to Christ, as a result of what he learned and what he has shared in his writings, many people today are having an effective ministry among the Muslims, one of the fastest growing religions in the world today. And they're reaching these people with the message of Jesus Christ because of many of the things that Samuel Zwemer learned and put into writing on pages so people could, could understand how to do this. He stuck to it. He stayed with it. I guess that's one of the most difficult parts of trying to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If we're not careful, you see, we go from experience to experience, and our life becomes a product of emotions. This kind of perseverance is not based on emotion. This kind of perseverance is based on an act of my will, a choice that I make. That by the grace of God and with his help, I will stick to it. You see, there's a beautiful passage that helps me to understand how this works. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And here's what it says. Here's what it says. The last part of verse 12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now notice, it doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work it out. Unleash it. Let the Spirit of God show you how to let your life grow and develop as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. Working it out. It's like when you get a mathematical problem and there's a formula that you follow to work that out. God has given us 
his formulas in the scripture regarding how to work out our Christian life. The life of a Christian is not in the, in the initial acceptance of Christ as our Savior, and it's not based on our good experiences emotionally periodically. The life of a believer that is going to persevere is a life that is continually growing and developing a little at a time, maybe just a little bit every day. Maybe it's even imperceptible, but growing and putting into practice the things that the Word of God says. He's given us the formulas. But it's required of you and me. And this is what this verse says. It is required of you and me to work that out. No one can do it for us. Skip can get up here or Gino or someone else and teach the Word and instruct and inspire and encourage, and that's great. But what happens when you leave here? What happens when you go home? What happens when you go to work? What happens when you go to school? How you put this into practice is what he's talking about here. Take responsibility to develop your Christian life. That's what that first phrase is. Now notice the next verse, because here's the, here's the promise, and here's what helps us to keep going. In verse 13, God says to you and to me, He is at work in you, in me, to will and to do of His good pleasure. You see, we can't do it on our own. But it's imperative that we take that first step. It's imperative that I take responsibility to know what to do what I know I should do. That's my responsibility. I can't say to God, God, give me love for that person that I don't like. You see, that's not the way it goes. Because God already said, George, you love them. That's a command. I can't ask God to fulfill His command in me. I have to respond in obedience to His command. When I do, then He says, He will work in me to do what is pleasing to Him. Do you see how that works? Let me give you an illustration. I'm going to ask the fellows on the control booth to do something here in a minute, if it doesn't foul things up. When I count to three... I want them to cut the sound. Okay? One, two, three. Back, please. <laughs> now, what happened? They've got a little control up there, and all they did was cut the power. Just, they turned it down. The power was there all the time, wasn't it? It's in that little unit that they have up there. But they turned it off. Now, God's power is always available to you and to me. Always. All we have to do is obey Him, and He says He will do what He promised to do. It's like turning on the switch, and the power is flowing. But until I choose to turn that switch on, my friends... The power of God, as great as it is, is not going to invade my life by force. God never invades a life by force. He always invites us. He appeals to us. 
He has blessings for us. He wants to give them to us, but He doesn't force them on us. It's when we are willing to take that step of obedience, whatever that step might be in your life or in mine, and each one of us is different, the moment I'm willing to take that step, God says, He will work in me to will Him to do what He wants. But that step, that little step that we're talking about, is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in perseverance. Perseverance is something that I do by continually choosing to do what I know God wants me to do. That's what perseverance is. Continually choosing to do what God wants me to do. Now let's go back to the passage a minute. He says, don't throw away your confidence. That word confidence, by the way, is also the word for boldness. Boldness. Don't throw away your boldness, your confidence in living for Jesus. Don't, don't lose it as you go out from the chapel tonight. Don't deposit it somewhere and pick it up when you come back. Wear it like a cloak. This confidence, this boldness, a willingness to identify myself with the Lord Jesus in every circumstance, in every situation. Don't throw away your boldness, your confidence. Now, on what basis can we do that? Well, number one, number one, we do it because of who God is. That's the first thing. Who God is. Not how I feel, but who God is. If you have your Bible or Testament open to the 10th chapter of Hebrews where we're reading these verses, just look over the next page or turn the page, whatever you need, and look at Hebrews 11.6. Hebrews 11.6. It says this. Without faith, it, this will be different in different versions, of course, but the idea is this. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Two things. If we want to draw near to God, if we want to have fellowship with God, that's what he's talking about, there are two things that we have to believe. That God is who he claims to be and that he will do what he promised to do. That is what gives us the, the strength and the courage to persevere. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away your courage. Keep reminding yourself of who God is and what he has promised. Back in the Old Testament, there's a verse, uh, Numbers 23, 19. It says this, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? And has he spoken and will he not make it good? God doesn't lie to us. He doesn't play games with us. Our problem is, very often, we don't know what he has said. We don't know what his promises are. We don't know what he says about himself. And so 
a circumstance comes up and it's difficult for us and we're in the middle of a trial and, and, and something is going that's really tough on our lives and we forget that God has promised to meet those needs if we just go to Him and, and trust Him and believe Him and obey Him. He is who He claims to be and He'll do what He promised to do. There's a beautiful verse in the book of Jeremiah. It says this, Jeremiah 29:11. I know the plans, listen to this, this is beautiful. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. See, part of persevering, part of enduring, is because we have a hope. We have a hope for eternity, but we also have a hope that God is here right now to help me in this circumstance. Remember what he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then the next verse is terrific. It says, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Don't throw away your confidence in fear or any other reason. God is who he claims to be, and he'll do what he promised to do. But another thing that should help me persevere, and that is the many times that he makes statements of commitment to you and to me. See, God has made tremendous statements of commitment to you and to me. Things that he says he's going to do. For example, one of them is in Romans 8.29. It says, He has committed himself to conform us, those of us who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. He has committed himself to you and to me to conform us to the image of his Son. Wouldn't you like that? To be conformed to the image of of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants to do. He wants to help you and me be better reflectors of Jesus so that people when they're around us are aware that Jesus is there. I remember an experience I had in Latin America when we were living at um, Quito, Ecuador, South America, working with radio station 8CJB. And I, I was going through a time of, of real testing spiritually. I had a real burden for the people of Latin America. So many, many millions that have never heard of Jesus Christ as, as a personal Savior. And I used to travel in evangelistic campaigns all through Central America and Mexico and into Venezuela and Colombia. And, and God blessed the ministry of his word. But you know, I'd get in an airplane to fly back to Quito. And in those days, there in the Andes Mountains, they used to use the old DC-3. I don't know, most of you don't even know what a DC-3 is. It's a, it's a two-engine prop plane, one of the most sturdy, dependable planes that probably has ever been built. 
Some places are still using them for cargo and things like that. But that's all we used to fly in. The only problem was they, they were not pressurized, so we could never fly over 14,000 feet. Now, the snow caps of the Andes go up to 21, 22,000 feet. And so we'd be flying through these valleys continually. And 14,000 feet, you can look down and, and see the terrain very, very well. So here I'd be flying back from Bogota, Colombia, let's say, where I'd had a, a meeting. And we'd fly over village after village, small town after small town. And I'd think, how are they going to hear? They don't come to these meetings in Bogota or in Caracas or Maracaibo or wherever it is. They can't get there. How are they going to hear? And I would return home burdened. And God was doing a work in my life at that time. And I was aware that I was very active in serving him. But I wasn't really taking the time to strengthen my own soul, to learn to know him as I should. And God brought into my life two young men, Jim Elliott and Pete Fleming. Jim Elliott and Pete Fleming were two of the five men that were killed by the Alka Indians in 1956. If you've never read that story, I would encourage you to do it. It's one of the most thrilling, exciting missionary stories of our day. I don't know if it's back here in the, in the bookstore or not, but I'm sure Gino could get some copies. The title of the book is Through Gates of Splendor, written by Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, who was one of these men. Jim Elliot and Pete Fleming, a couple of young fellows that had just come to the mission field, younger than I, less experienced than I on the field, and yet there was a quality in their life that I recognized. I saw, I saw Jesus in their lives in a fresh, new way. They had an intimate relationship with him that I didn't have. I was busy serving the Lord. I was broadcasting on 35 programs a week there at the station in Spanish and English. I was responsible for 100 programs a week. I was pastoring a little church. I was going out to a neighborhood village on Sunday mornings and preaching in the open square. I'd gotten mobbed and run out of town twice there. I was doing everything that I thought I should do. Very busy for God. But you know what I'd forgotten? The need to get to know Him. The thing David was talking about in that verse that I used at the beginning living in his presence, delighting in his incomparable perfections and glory. I saw that in these two men. And it gave me a thirst and a hunger to know God better. And, and I remember in August of 1952, I got before the Lord and I said, Lord, I don't know what it's going to take and it doesn't make any difference. Whatever you have to do, please let me get to know you. Make me the kind of a person you want me to be. You see, that's what God wants to do in my life and in yours. He wants us to be conformed to the image of Jesus so that other people see that. That they're attracted to the person of Jesus Christ in your life and mine. He wants to do that. 
And when we keep our heart fixed on him, as he tells us who he is and what he's promised to do, we can persevere, we can go on, and we can allow him to begin to change us into the kind of people he wants us to be. There was a man by the name of E.M. Bounds. Wrote several books. One was Power Through Prayer. And in that little booklet, he says this. The church, that means all the believers everywhere in the world, the church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. And the word men, of course, includes women. It's a generic term. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for people. It isn't methods, you see. It isn't programs. It's people, you and me, that God wants to take and conform to the image of his Son and use us for his glory. If we're willing to take whatever steps are necessary to persevere, to stick with it, to not give up, to keep going. Better men. I mentioned a while ago the fact that we were mobbed and run out of a town there. In one of those experiences, we drove up to the edge of town one day on a Sunday morning. We were driving a GMC carryall, and I had a couple of men with me. We used to go into the little area there in, in the, the plaza, the little square in this, in this little town called Kotokoyao. And we'd sing, and then we'd, I'd teach the word to this little group of people. We'd have 50 or so that would gather around. And for about six weeks, I had noticed, out on the edge of the crowd, across the plaza, he didn't come close, he just stood way back there, there was a fellow that listened. And he was there for several weeks. Well, this Sunday that we arrived, they stopped us at the edge of town. And they said, don't go into town today. And I said, why not? Well, they've gotten the mob together, and they're going to try and kill you. I said, oh, that's interesting. So I turned to the fellows that were with me, and I said, what do you think? Should we go? Well, they said, whatever you say, we'll do. So we prayed. And we went. We drove in, and there were about 300 people in this little square. And they opened the door, opened the way for us, rather, to drive the car in, and then they mobbed it. And they tried to turn it over. But the only problem was they didn't have a team. They weren't working together. This side was pushing this way, and this side was pushing this way, and nothing was happening. One man jumped on the, the, the bumper in the front with a gallon of gas poured it all over the, the hood in the front of the car. We could smell it. Then he stood back and lit matches and threw They all went out. Every one of them. Yeah, I felt like clapping too, but I was too scared. But in the middle of that set, if you can picture this now, this mob and this stuff all going on, and all of a sudden, I looked across. The, the Ecuadorians are short people, and I could look over their heads from the car. And here was a fellow pushing his way through the crowd, and they had torn his shirt off. 
his, uh, there was a lady following him. I guessed it was his wife, and it turned out to be. They had torn her dress. But they pushed their way through, and they came to the car. And when they got close enough, we were able to force the door open against the people and let them in. And I said, what do you want? Who are you, and what do you want? He said, I've been listening to you. And then I recognized he was the guy that had been standing back there at the edge. And he said, I want to identify with what you've been teaching. That's all he could say. He didn't know anything about receiving Jesus or no terms like that. I found out later he was a, a tailor. He had a third grade education. His name is Eliseo Chamorro. He's half Quechua Indian, half Spanish. I had the privilege of leading him to the Lord and then beginning to help him in his growth spiritually. He led his mother his wife, two sisters, a couple of uncles and aunts, to the Lord within weeks. His life was changed, and they saw the change. One day he showed up at the door. I went there, and he had a young man with him. He said, I want you to meet my brother, Nestor, 15 years old. So I invited him to come in. And then Eliseo said, Don Jorge, in Spanish, of course, all this was going on. I, I want you to tell Nestor what you've been telling me. I said, no, no, you tell him. He said, but I'm not ready. I don't know enough yet. I said, you know more than he does. <laughs> so you just tell him what you know. And if you run into trouble, come and talk and we'll try and figure it out. So he led his brother Nestor to the Lord and began helping him. Well, we had to leave because my wife almost died there from a case of severe infectious hepatitis. And we had to come back to the United States. And it was several years before I heard anything. One day, I heard that Nestor, the 15-year-old boy, had gone on to university there in Quito, graduated, and now he was up in Colombia, South America, in the country of Colombia, leading the work for Campus Crusade in that whole country. 300 staff people that he was responsible for. Now think of it. It wasn't a method. It wasn't some fancy plan. It was a man. It was Eliseo with a third grade education who was willing to let God use him. And today in that town, in Cotocoya, there is an evangelical church because of Eliseo's testimony. Persevering. He had some tough times. There were many people who persecuted them, physically and otherwise. He stuck with it. And God blessed and multiplied his life who knows how many times. Don't, it says, don't throw away your confidence. Your confidence in God and your confidence that he can use you. Your confidence that he needs you. Last time I talked, we talked about that verse in Matthew 9.36-38 where it talks about the labors are few. And Jesus said, Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest to put forth his laborers into the harvest. Remember that? 
When you start praying that God will put forth his labors into the harvest field, remember, your first prayer should be, start with me. Help me be a laborer. Help me stick with it. Help me be a good finisher. Let me read something for you of Paul's experience. If you want to look it up, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm just going to read, I'm just going to read several verses here. Chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, the first verse, Paul says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. We don't give up. We're going to stick with it. Now look down at verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Now that is what God will do for you and for me. We may go through times that will be very difficult. But he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's why we can stick it out. That's why we can persevere. That's why we can do what we're told here in this book of, of the Hebrews Enduring. We have need of endurance. And then notice the next phrase in that verse 36. So that when you have done the will of God, and the will of God is for us to endure, to stick with it, to continue following Him. Do you remember in the sixth chapter of John, Jesus began to teach some of the demands of discipleship. You see, as long as he was healing and feeding and preaching the good news of the, of the kingdom, people were happy and responding to some degree. And that's true today. That's still true. But the minute that Jesus began to lay down some of the demands of discipleship, in John, the sixth chapter, it says, many of his, of his disciples, notice that, his followers, many, turned and followed him no more. Because the demand was too great. And so he says, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, when you have hung in there, when you have stuck with it, when you've accepted trials and, and testings and, and, and believed that God is involved in them to produce in you the things that he wants to see in you as a believer and as a follower of Jesus Christ, that character that he wants to see, conforming you to the image of his Son, 
When you have done the will of God, you will receive the promise. Amen. The promise. What is the promise? Well, quickly. The promise has two sides to it. The promise, the long-range promise, that we're going to be with Jesus. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. One glimpse of his dear face, all, all sorrow will erase. When we see Jesus, and we're going to see him, he promised we would. And he says, hang in there, persevere, so that you can receive the promise, that promise. But also, the promise that he has for us today. The promise of victory. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, Thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the fragrance of his knowledge by us in every place. Victory today for you and for me. Those things that you're struggling with, those, those personal areas of your life that you need to overcome. God says, you come to me, you confess those things, you let me help you. You obey me and I will work in you to will and do of, your good, uh, of his good pleasure, of my good pleasure. Victory. That's the promise for now. We're not alone. This isn't something we have to struggle through somehow and grit our teeth and, and hope we make it. No way. No way. He says, I am with you. I will strengthen you. James, the book of James is one of the most practical books in the Bible. In fact, it's so practical that at one point, Martin Luther, because of what he was trying to communicate regarding the message of grace, Martin Luther called the book of James an epistle of straw. He wasn't too impressed with it. The reason being, James talks a lot about our responsibility. James is the one who says, faith without works is what? Dead. So faith, the faith that we're talking about here, this endurance to hang in there, is demonstrated in action. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But James talking about these trials that come and these things that test us, notice what he says in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now let me ask you a question and answer it. And answer it out loud. Do you feel like being joyful when you're going through a trial? You don't feel like it, do you? No, neither do I. Then how do we do that? By making a choice. By not allowing ourselves to respond on the basis of our, of our emotions, our feelings. This is a generation, our society, everyone, 
lives on the basis of feelings. If you feel okay, that's great. If it feels good, do it. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? You know, all that kind of stuff. Feelings. We have songs written about feelings. But see, the Christian life is not based on feelings. The Christian life is based on choices. Choices that we make with our will. When we choose to do the will of God, that's perseverance. And so James says, consider it joy when you encounter various trials. Choose. Choose to recognize that this is for your good and consider it joy. You may not feel that way. Consider it with your will, with your mind. That's, what, that's where you consider. You don't consider with your feelings. You consider with your mind. Consider it joy. Choose. Then he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces the very thing we're talking about in, he, in Hebrews 10. Produces endurance. Perseverance. The tests that God allows are to strengthen us. It's like any exercise program. Some of you exercise in various ways. Some are jogging or running and various things to, to develop greater endurance, to get the heart going, to get the, the respiratory system moving. I've lifted weights all my life and I enjoy doing it because it does the same thing. You're working against... You're, you're working against a force of some kind to try and develop something. Well, that's what God says I'm doing for you. I'm bringing things into your life to make you work against a force, the force of trials, to strengthen you, to help you become what I want you to be, to develop your spiritual muscles so that you can endure, so that you can hang in there, so he, he, James goes on, he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then he says, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word perfect is the word for mature. Tests develop spiritual maturity. If we allow ourselves to learn from those tests, if we endure, if we stick to it, if we don't give up and start feeling sorry for ourselves, if we thank God for them, he says it will produce maturity. Let me close with this passage from back in the book of Job. You remember Job? Job went through some terrible times. In the place where we're going to be reading about him, chapter 23, he's sitting there, if you remember, covered with boils. I can't imagine that. I really can't. I had, I had a boil one time. One boil. I picked it up on a trip overseas, got a staph infection, and it was so painful, it was so uncomfortable. 
And I can't imagine your body being covered with that, that pain and that discomfort. The Bible says he was sitting there and he had a broken gourd and he would scratch himself with that thing to try and get some relief. And then sitting right there around him are three, <laughs> three friends. And all the time they're saying, Job, buddy, you know what's happening to you? You had it coming. God's just, he's just doing what you deserve. I mean, they were real comforters. You know, these guys were really helping him. But notice, here's Job in the middle of that situation. And here's what he says. Behold, I go forward. And he is not there. And backward. And I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. Can you understand what Job is saying? Job is saying, emotionally, I do not feel God anywhere near me. Emotionally. Have you ever been there? Sure you have, and so have I. I wonder, where is God in all this? I remember the day that I heard that those five men had been killed by the Alka Indians. They were young men. Four of them were my friends. I had flown into the jungle several times with Nate Saint, the pilot, who had taken them in to that little landing strip on one of the rivers. All of them killed by spears of the Alka Indians. And when I heard that on the radio that day, and they gave that report, my first reaction was one of total disconcerting uneasiness. And my first question, which is a silly thing to do, but we do it anyway. I said, Lord, how could you do that? How could you allow five men in the prime of life that we need so much in Ecuador, five men that were gifted, and they're gone? I struggled with that. But that was on an emotional level. And I had to keep coming back to the fact that God says He is in control. And He doesn't have to explain to me what He does and why He does it. God is sovereign. Well, Job did that. After making this statement about his emotions, notice what he says in the next verse. But, but, I don't feel Him anywhere near me, but He knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. Now notice the next verse. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not departed from it. I have not departed from the command of his lips, 
I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Remember what we said at the beginning? Obedience to whatever God has for you to do. He says he will help you. He will strengthen you. He will work in you to will and do of his good pleasure. That's what endurance is. That's what Job is saying. Emotionally, I can't handle this. I don't know what's going on. But I know God's in control, and when it's all over with, He's going to make me the person He wants me to be. I'll come forth as gold. In the meantime, I am going to keep obeying what I know. My foot has held fast to His path. I have not turned aside. I have esteemed the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. My friends, that is what will help us hang in there. The Word of God, the Spirit of God at work in you and at work in me. We can't do it any other way. We can't do it because we feel good. We can't do it because we enjoy singing these songs of worship, as beautiful as they are. That's only part of the picture. The other part is knowing what the Scripture says, obeying it, and believing that God is going to fulfill His promise to work in us, to will and to do of his good pleasure. Let's pray. You've not left us alone, Father. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit who lives in us as your children, as we have received Christ as our personal Savior, you have given us the Spirit to teach us all things, to guide us into all truth. Help us, Father. Help us to make a new commitment to allow you to teach us. And then help us to be willing to obey that you might strengthen us and and help us to do what you want us to do. Lord God, help us. Help us to be people who endure. People who stick to it. People who don't give up. People who aren't discouraged by circumstances, but who believe that you are in control and who learn to take their strength from you. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you. I, I think we're dismissed, Gina, or do you have something else? Thank you. The Lord.